0: How are we this morning? Are we sure? You like the way I pronounce the word sure as sure? Y'all been in the South too long? Kidding, of course. Oh, I forgot to start my timer. There we go. All right, well, we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 5, and we have a actually a longer passage than what we had Nancy read for us this morning. Uh, Nancy read 5, 12 through 26, and she, she left off in the middle of the story. And like Paul Harvey, we're going to pick up and tell you the rest of the story uh, all the way through uh, chapter 5, verse 42. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and open them up to Acts chapter 5. I will assume as I look at you flicking through your smartphone that you're scrolling through your scriptures and not checking your Facebook or Twitter feed. Right, Instagram. That's what it is. Let me just offer a bit of a summary as we as we step into Acts chapter 5 verse 12. We will remember together that that just before Jesus ascended into heaven and returned to the right hand of God where he was exalted in glory we'll remember that Luke, St. Luke records in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus giving his church a mission. He, he says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And as St. Luke records the unfolding of events as he writes for Theophilus, the book of Acts, this is exactly what we see happen. The Holy Spirit fell upon the earliest church in Acts chapter 2 and filled with the power and the boldness of the Holy Spirit, the church set about fulfilling the plan of God, making Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, known proclaiming life, salvation, forgiveness of sins in his name, and doing miraculous works, healing people in the name, the power of Jesus. Now, very quickly, the earliest church, led by the apostles, very quickly, the earliest church found itself in trouble with the powers that be in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 4, St. Luke records the very first whiff of this trouble. Just as Jesus said would happen, as the apostles and the earliest church went about God's plan, proclaiming Christ crucified and risen, opposition arose. But in the face of this opposition, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 4, uh, sort of a low-level low-grade opposition in which the, the Sanhedrin call Peter and John before them and say to Peter and John, Stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Stop talking about Jesus. Shut up and go away. Well, in the face of that opposition, the threat is implied, the earliest church prayed for boldness and found boldness in the sovereignty of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. All things were happening according to God's plan and God's purpose, and the earliest church said listen, Lord, you continue to do mighty works and uh, make us bold to continue to preach Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. They faced opposition, but in the face of opposition, they continued to proclaim Jesus. As we come to Acts chapter 5 today, starting at verse 12 and running to verse and through verse 16, what St. Luke offers us is a summary passage. After this first bit of trouble with the Sanhedrin, well, what happened? What did they do? Well, Luke tells us, Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico as a part of the temple. And so despite the warnings and the threats of the Sanhedrin, the apostles continued to preach Jesus, crucified and risen. And the miracles continued to be done in the name of Jesus to authenticate that preaching. As a result of of the obedience of the apostles, as as a result of the Holy Spirit-empowered apostles continuing to work the plan of God, St. Luke tells us, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And from the perspective of the Sadducees, from the perspective of the chief priests, from the perspective of the Sanhedrin, therein lies the problem. The earliest church went about God's plan. So naturally, opposition doesn't just rise, but it actually escalates. It gets worse. It gets more serious. It gets heavier. But what we find in this passage, I think, is a word of encouragement because what we find in this passage, Acts chapter 5, 12 through 42, is, is really a simple big idea for this morning. What we find in this passage is that the plan of God. Is unstoppable opposition will arise opposition may arise all kinds of opposition in fact but God's plan is unstoppable now having said that I'm I'm a little concerned that you guys are not with me this morning that we're not quite awake this morning are we okay thank you Steve appreciate that looking for that I'm still waiting for Thelma to say help him Jesus We pick up in uh, Acts chapter 5, uh, You look at verse 17. This already exasperated Sadducees were filled with jealousy at the growth of the church and the popularity of the apostles. The impact of the church had begun to expand beyond the city of Jerusalem and the Sadducees were angry. And perhaps part of their anger is the simple fact that, that the Sadducees themselves were revealed to be impotent powerless when compared to the power found in the name of Jesus. Here was Peter, and here was John. They were out, in the, and the other apostles like them. These men who the Sadducees considered to be uneducated, common men, below the standard and the, the, the authority of the Sadducees. Here they were, out in public, proclaiming healing in the name of Jesus, and seeing people, lame people, get up and walk away healed. Here they were, out uh, preaching in the name of Jesus, and seeing people's lives changed. Here they were, seeing multitudes of both men and women coming, laying on their cots and their mats so just a shadow of Peter would pass over them and be healed. What we have here is the impotence of the Sadducees revealed. They cannot do what the apostles are doing. Who has ever been healed in the name of Caiaphas? Who has ever been healed in the name of Annas? Who has ever been healed by the power of the Sadducees? And they can't do it. And because they can't do it, because they're impotent before it, what, they, what we see is jealousy. So often we're jealous because somebody else is able to do something that we want to do but we can't do. And here we see the Sadducees, impotent to preach, impotent to heal, and all of their crowds beginning to turn their face towards Jesus. So what healings did they have to show? None driven by jealousy, the Sadducees resolved to shut down the apostles to stop the preaching of Jesus and to get the miracles to cease. And so we see that all the apostles were publicly arrested, thrown into jail. But as darkness rises up against it, the plan of God is found to be unstoppable. God delivers the apostles from jail. Look what we see in verse 19. During the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them, those are the apostles, out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And they do. The apostles went. They went back to the place where they were, where they were arrested. They go back to doing what they were doing when they were arrested, preaching Jesus. And there is, a, I think, a touch of humor here. As St. Luke records the Sanhedrin's embarrassed reaction, I mean, think about this, right? The the Sanhedrin or the, the Jewish ruling council. These are these are men of authority, men of standing. The Sadducees are connected to sort of the wealthy upper class. They've got they can they can call people before them. They dismiss people with the word. This is the group of seventy men who had the authority to present Jesus to Pontius Pilate and demand crucifixion and actually have Pilate bow to their will. These are a group of men who have authority and power. But when they call the prisoners to be brought out to trial, they find them gone. Again, impotent. The powerlessness of the Sanhedrin is again shown. Now, this, this, to me, this is a funny situation. You know, all right, bring them on out. Bring them on out. Here we are, seventy judges. We're going to rule on these guys. Oh, but sir, the prison cell's empty. There's a couple of wrinkled blankets and an empty cot. There's what do? You? To me, that I don't. Maybe I'm alone in that. I guess I have a warped sense of humor, but I think it's really funny. The, the, the powerlessness of the Sanhedrin, the, power, the true powerlessness of darkness is being shown here, folks. The Sanhedrin couldn't stop the apostles in chapter 4 with their previous threats. I mean, even more to the point, before that, they couldn't stop Jesus because they got him crucified, but God raised him up from death. And in chapter 4, the, the Sanhedrin couldn't stop the apostles with their previous threats. The, Peter said, We're going to obey God, not man, and they went about preaching Jesus. They couldn't do what the apostles were doing in healing. They couldn't even keep the apostles locked in jail overnight. Barney Fife did better than the Sanhedrin. (laughs) And he only had one bullet. God's plan is unstoppable. And so the guards have to re-arrest the apostles in the temple, again, doing exactly what God had told them to do, the very thing that got them arrested in the first place. St. Luke reports another trial, this one more serious than the last. Starting at verse 27, the, the, the finally having been re-arrested, that's really embarrassing, having been re-arrested, the apostles are brought before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest levels two charges against them. First, he says, uh, he charges them with disobedience. You know, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name; yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Why should that catch the high priest by surprise? This is exactly what Peter told him he was going to do back in chapter four, when he says, "You know, listen. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak." Of what we have seen and heard. And here the the, the the high priest on behalf of the Sanhedrin seems to be saying, Well, I'm a little bit surprised that you are thumbing your nose at our authority and doing what we told you not to do. Peter would rather offend those who have the power of life and death in a very real sense, would rather offend them than offend creator, sovereign God, who gives true life in Jesus. And then second, the Sanhedrin takes exception uh, at the apostles' insistence that they were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. You, you intend uh, to bring this man's blood upon us. He's conveniently forgetting the proclamations of the crowd in Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, where they shouted out before Pontius Pilate, his blood, Jesus' blood, be on us and on our children. And the funny thing is, these these charges are true. The apostles are guilty. They have done this. And acting as the spokesman for the group, Peter preaches, and he affirms, they did indeed disobey their order because we must obey God rather than men. And he goes on to say this, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. He does exactly what he's being charged with in the presence of those who are bringing him to trial. Peter's a little bit like, you know, sometimes when you bite your cheek, you get a wound on the inside of your mouth, and your tongue just will not stay away from it, right? You guys ever had that problem, or you have a little sore tooth, and you just keep tonguing that thing, right? Uh, Peter is kind of like the tongue in the mouth of the Sanhedrin. He keeps pressing them on this. You killed Jesus. You're right, you killed Jesus, and we're going to obey God. You killed Jesus, but the God you claim to be serving, the God of Israel, he raised Jesus up. And more than that, more than just raising Jesus up, he exalted Jesus to a place of glory as leader and as Savior. And Peter, I think here, does an unthinkable thing. He extends the offer of repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ to the very group of men, putting him on trial, the very group of men who had demanded Jesus' crucifixion. That's an amazing thing to me. I mean, the Holy Spirit inspired boldness here, folks. Peter, to stand there and say, I'm going to obey God, not you. The same God, by the way, who raised Jesus up from the dead, the Jesus you killed, the Jesus who will forgive you. There's a bit of rebuke here as well. The fact that the Sanhedrin and the leaders of the Jewish people were dismissing the witness of the apostles meant that they were also dismissing the witness of the Holy Spirit, which meant they were disobeying the God of Israel they claimed to be serving. And once again, Peter drops the mic. What else is there to say? His defense, it's a defense, a response to the charges... It really just enraged the Sanhedrin all the more, and they want to kill him. Folks, we ought not be surprised when darkness rises up against the light. We ought not be surprised when the forces of evil attempt to overcome the forces of light. We ought not be surprised when the world strikes back against the gospel of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks about the fact that the darkness hates to have its deeds exposed to the light. Naturally, it strikes back because of that. And what we see, in fact, is, is rather than the Sanhedrin back in, uh, here in Acts chapter 5, rather than the Sanhedrin throwing up their hands and saying, yep, you're right, you beat us this time, we're done, they actually escalate, and escalation continues. We ought not be surprised by that. Darkness strikes out in its attempts to suppress and oppress the light. It strikes out to destroy the light, but it can't. It can't. In John chapter 1, verse 5, the light has come into the world and darkness has not overcome it. Darkness cannot win, folks, because the plan of God is unstoppable. That's what Gamaliel has to say here. This is uh, sometimes where we need help the most. Our help comes from strange places. And here, amidst the call to kill Peter and James and John and, and Thomas and the other apostles, and midst to kill them and destroy the church, a, a mediating voice arises from within the Sanhedrin itself in Gamaliel, a Pharisee. Gamaliel a man of reputation, a man of influence, a man respected by all the people, uh, the man who was the mentor to uh, Saul, who becomes Paul. He, he, he uses the historical examples of two failed false messiahs to say this. Keep away from these men. Let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Let me think about that. If it's of God, there's nothing, Gamaliel says, you can do. God's plan is unstoppable. He will find a way to do exactly what he wants to do. And, And more than just having to find a way by scratching around and duct taping things together and have plan B, Q, and X, what he does is, he, in his sovereignty, he knows exactly what he's going to do. And so whether you stone Peter and James and John, whether you behead Peter and James and John, it's not going to stop the very thing that's driving you crazy, which is the preaching of Jesus crucified and risen and people coming to faith in his name and healings in the power of his name because that's part of God's plan. And God's plan is unstoppable. And so the Sanhedrin says, ah, you're right, let's beat them anyway, which they did. And then again, warned them to not speak in the name of Jesus. And what do you think the apostles' response is going to be? Go, Jesus, right? What's that meme? Not today, Satan, right? They actually counted it as a blessing to have received blessings beca- or beatings because of the word of God. And they go out and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching That the Christ is Jesus. Darkness rises up, it escalates its opposition, but the plan of God is found to be unstoppable. The plan of God is unstoppable because it has everything to do with God. The plan of God has to do with his kingdom coming to bear upon his world through Jesus Christ. It has to do with making disciples through the preaching of his word. It has to do with Jesus, the crucified and risen one, being made known so that God may give repentance and forgiveness of sins to all who believe. This is the plan of God. And it is unstoppable, unstoppable because fundamentally, it is God who carries it out. In our gospel reading for this morning, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then responds to Peter's good confession, congratulating him because he was the recipient of God's grace. He was blessed because Jesus' identity had been revealed to him by the father. And then Jesus went on to say that he would build his church Jesus would build Jesus' church upon the confession that he is the Christ the Son of the living God and Jesus pronounces that his church will be victorious. He says this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the third Lord of the Rings movie, Return of the King, there's a great scene where uh, the ga- the armies of Mordor have been defeated by the returning king, Aragorn. And the Aragorn and the armies of men, they go to the gates of Mordor. Who's on the defensive here, folks? Mordor is on the defensive. It's the armies of men who are on the offensive. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's okay. There's probably three that do. <laughs> that's the same here in this passage, right? We oftentimes think about this idea that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. Folks, it's the church that's on the offensive. It is hell that's on the defensive. It is hell that's being laid siege to. Jesus' church has the mission to be on the offensive, to actively go about making disciples, making repentance and forgiveness of sins to all who believe in Jesus known for the purpose of God's kingdom expanding. That's the plan of god that's the mission jesus gave to his followers in acts chapter 1 verse 8 that is the mission of the church that continues on today it hasn't changed but in witnessing to jesus the crucified and risen christ in proclaiming repentance and forgiveness in him in making disciples the church is on the attack storming even the gates of hell and darkness is beaten back The plan of God is unstoppable. Jesus has promised to share his victory with the church in him. And because of him, the church is victorious. So when the church goes about its mission, when the church is obedient to God and seeking to be used by God for the fulfillment of his purpose, opposition is going to arise. But the plan of God is unstoppable. Starting in Acts chapter 4, opposition to Jesus' church and to the gospel escalates. It escalates to chapter 5. It continues to to boil until it comes to a crisis point at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8 with the stoning of Stephen and the, the persecution of the church under the leadership of Saul. But St. Luke's point in, 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 in cataloging and in chronicling this escalation of persecution, St. Luke's point is that opposition does not and cannot stop the plan of God, the growth of his kingdom through Jesus. Gamaliel is proven right. It is part of St. Luke's point to show that this undertaking is of God because the escalation of persecution really is the catalyst for further expansion of the church. In early Acts chapter 8, what happens as a result of, of Stephen being murdered is that the apostles and parts of the earliest church, like a uh, mature dandelion is blown into and the seeds scatter around in the air, that is what happens to the earliest church because of the persecution. And rather than stopping the gospel, rather than stopping the growth of the kingdom, what we find is that persecution actually furthers it. Why? Because the plan of God is unstoppable. It is God's plan, and it is unstoppable. When we talk about the unstoppable nature of God's plan, we are not saying that the church or churches are perfect. We're not saying that the church, capital C, church, or churches are always doing exactly what God would have them do. Nor are we saying that there won't be pain or sorrow or beatings or loss. The apostles here were beaten. In a few chapters of Acts, believers in Jesus will begin to die for their witness. Some of the churches planted here in the book of Acts develop serious problems that have to be dealt with, and some of the churches died. We are saying, however, that pain, sorrow, and loss will not derail the church, nor keep God's plan for kingdom expansion from being fulfilled. God plays the long game. He takes the long view. And while it may sometimes look like darkness is winning, the reality is that God's plan will never be stopped. Every church, including Emmanuel Anglican Church, is connected to something larger than ourselves as we're connected to the universal church, the only organization Jesus ever promised to build. And being part of the universal church, the only organization Jesus ever promised to build is to be plugged into the unstoppable plan of God. The question for us to ask is, where is God working and how can we join him in that? How do we go about blessing people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom? That's the way we've begun to talk about what God's plan looks like for us. That's a vision that comes directly from Matthew 16, 13 through 20, John 4, Matthew 28, 18 and 20, and Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I think there is great encouragement in passages such as Acts 5, 12 through 42. I think there's a lot of encouragement here because, quite frankly, we recognize that it's not all about us. It's about what God wants to do through us. And because it's God doing that which he wants to do through us, it's unstoppable. And yes, we may get beaten. And yes, we may get bloodied. And yes, we may even die. But ultimately, we're a part of something greater than ourselves. God, the creator, sovereign Lord, wants Jesus to be made known. And he will get Jesus made known. Because his plan is is unstoppable. What this means is that while we may and will endure pain and sorrow and struggle, we're not, we are part of a kingdom which will not. We're part of a kingdom which cannot fail or fall. Not because we're great. Lord knows we're not great. I look at myself in the mirror every day and I wonder about this beard. But I'm not that great. But God is. You're not that great, but God is. We're not that great. But God is. It's not because our plans are unstoppable. I make plans every day that somehow don't come to fruition. Every morning or every evening, I set my alarm. I'm going to get up early, and I'm going to go run before it's hotter than the gates of Hades outside because I live in northwest Florida. I'm going to get up early and get that done, and then, you know, I hit snooze about seven times. It's not because our plans are unstoppable, but because God's plans are unstoppable. And it's not because this is our victory. I can't win this. We can't win this. But God has already won this in Jesus. God is at work to complete his plan and our calling is to be a part of that plan. Resting in the sovereignty of God, being bold in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that it is God's plan that is unstoppable. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.